Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Massachusetts, where Paul Theroux speaks with us about Mexico, death, road trips, Donald Trump, and of course, his new book, On the Plain of Snakes. Paul is the author of many best-selling books, including The Great Railway Bazaar and The Mosquito Coast, which was made into a Hollywood film starring Harrison Ford. His new book, On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey, will be published on October 8, 2019. So now, here is Paul Theroux. I am speaking with Paul Theroux about his new book, On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey, which is a wonderful, meaty book about Paul's journey along the border and deep into the heart of Mexico. I'd like to thank you so much for your time and coming on the show to speak with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, I guess we can just start with the, the question, uh, what compelled you to, to visit and write about Mexico? What impelled me to write it was... Um, I think two things. First was my experience of um, seeing the border for the first time in Nogales, Mexico, Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Mexico, and realizing that I could walk, I could park my car in Nogales, Arizona, walk down the street, go through a door, a little, and then, and then it was a turnstile and a little door in a big plate, sort of steel plate fence. I couldn't see through, open the door and walk into Mexico, just Mm. like Alice in Wonderland. You just (laughs) through the rabbit hole. And the idea that I was leaving this kind of salubrious, small American town and going into a, an amazing cultural transformation where there's suddenly there's music, street food, um, curio shops, bars, and so forth. And it, it was a dead, deadness and things like that. Mm-hmm. But just by walking through this fence, I was in a foreign country from, from, from the United States. It's, I've never had that experience before. So that was the first thing, which is the, um, the, the, the notion that, it was, that Mexico is so accessible. I mean, it is right down the street. And the other was um, uh, the president calling Mexicans rapists, murderers, and saying, we don't want them. And Mm. so I thought, well, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to acquaint myself with the whole border and, and with Mexicans in general. And writing at its best destroys the stereotype. Mm. You, 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 uh, read a book or you travel to a place you think, whether it's Chinese or the Republic of Ireland or Germany or Brazil, whatever, you, you realize that, you know, people are people and they're all, they come in all shapes and sizes. And suddenly there isn't a stereotype. It's, um, they're, they're uh, humanized through writing or travel. Mm-hmm. It's more so I thought, I, and I, and I also thought, um, I'll, I'll drive my own car. I'll drive along the border, I'll cross the border and then I'll go as far south as I can go, but driving my own car. And then and people are saying, oh, don't do it. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. So when people say don't do it, I think it, it's got to be, it's got to be a good experience. People <laughs> saying don't do it. It's got, it's going to work. It's going to work. Well, first, not many people do do it. Uh, they don't drive across. There's quite a lot of paperwork involved. So that was the, that was the motivation. The motivation was seeing this first border town, though I had seen them before, you know, but never in this way, never walked across. So uh, there was that, the shock of that, and then the sympathy that I felt for people, because on that trip, I saw people being deported and Mm -hmm. um, 
We're going in both directions, actually. There's some people who are heading, heading to, to, to cross the border illegally. And I thought, um, I'm going to take this opportunity. So I, and then I thought, I don't, you know, I don't have a job. I don't have anything else to do. I'll make it into a little project. I'll buy a car, a, a kind of disposable car, if someone steals it or if I wrap it around a tree, and um, and off I go. So that that was the way. It, and I can tell you that in all my traveling life, this was really one of the most wonderful experiences, one of the most stimulating mm. um, of all the trips I've taken. Yeah, it's you hear prohibitions about don't go, and it kind of reminds me of parents' prohibitions against doing drugs and having sex and smoking cigarettes, right? It intrigues you. <laughs> All the fun things. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, that's right. Because anyone who... Smoking is fun. I mean, and everyone knows that. It's hard to give up. And mm-hmm. you, some, I guess you become addicted to it. But God, you know, when people say, oh, you shouldn't smoke, I always say, do you ever smoke? And they say no. And I said, well, you don't know what you're missing because it's <laughs> such fun to smoke. <laughs> but... Um, Anyway, yeah, so Mexico was like that. Don't go, don't go, don't go. It's dangerous. Um, they're all the same, all that kind of stuff. But um, then you realize it's a very, very big, complex, multi-layered, multicultural place with great literature, great music, great food. And um, and I thought, well, I'm going to try to do it justice. Mm-hmm. And... Um... I guess, of course, the the stereotypes were dispelled uh, on your on your journey. Um, could you talk a little bit about specifically, like how um, how did the dissolution of those stereotypes surprise you while you were in Mexico, or what what surprised you um, in Mexico when compared to the stereotype of Mexico being flaunted on the other side of the border? That's a good question. I think um, what I what I found profoundly so was how res- how respectful Mexicans are toward older people. Now I'm an older writer. I'm an older man. I'm way past retirement age. And in the states, people think you know, get out of the way. Um, you're in the way. Um, you're just an old guy. You're not going to buy anything. We're going to sell stuff to younger people. Um, and you don't, I mean, an older person's kind of invisible, mm. invisible to women, invisible to the young, invisible, even an older writer, you know, the mainly publishers, um, readers are mainly interested, you know, what are, what are the young people buying? What are the young people doing? So the idea that Mexico is a place that respects elders, there are special terms for them. Um, so I mean, uh, la tercera edad, the third age. I'm, I'm, so I'm, kind of, I'm a hombre de juicio. I'm a man of judgment. I'm Don Pablo. So that was profoundly affecting to me, the notion that I can go, that you're feeling sort of, I mentioned this in the book, how you feel sort of disregarded. And then you go to a place and you think I have some status, just not because I'm a writer, not because I'm an old white guy, but because I'm an older person mm-hmm. and someone to listen to. So that's great. And then the other thing, I, I suppose the big surprise, I mean, I hadn't known that. You just know it by living there, by dealing with people. There are other things. One is I made friends there, but I made really good friends. And that struck me, the fact that if you, if you earn the respect of a Mexican person, um, Doing something, you you don't just get it by being polite or being nice or giving them money, but doing something that means something. I taught for a while, mm-hmm. and I thought I'm going to teach, but I'm not going to charge anything. Don't don't pay me, and you're not you don't have to pay any tuition, but just be in my seminar because you're a, a good writer. So I, they were Mexican writers, and, and I made a lot of friends that way. So respect for the old friendship, and then the others. Big surprise, I suppose, is the the uh, the variety of America of uh, Mexican literature, mm. uh, books of all kinds, I mean, novels, short stories, plays, histories. Just Mexican literature is not not translated into English, but it's it's there. And the number of writers that I met in Mexico City that's that's really something impressive. Mm. 
the art, the arts in general, music, painting, writing, all those things. And then the, the, the convention of the things that people mention, which is great weather, great food, <laughs> you know, um, beautiful landscapes. So all of that, I mean, I know I sound like the Mexican tourist board, but um, I've traveled quite a lot in my life. I've written 11 travel books. And um, so I'm a fairly good judge of, is it worth going to this place? Is it worth staying longer? Is, you know, is it... Does it give you something back? And I felt that about Mexico. Mm. And it wasn't, I wasn't in tourist Mexico. I wasn't in Cancun. You know, I wasn't in Merida. I wasn't, I didn't go to Veracruz. I did go to Mazatlan uh, and Puerto Vallarta. I didn't go to Acapulco. But I, I didn't write much about tourist Mexico. I wrote about the Mexico that people live in and the Mexico that people emigrate from, that the, the poor villages and the poor mm-hmm. towns in, in the South. You speak, um, you, you just spoke about one of the surprises is the respect for, for people in, uh, in their, their third age, um, in the third, third state. In your book, you, you, you talk about, uh, there's a theme that you bring up a few times, and that's a theme of feeling old. You said something like, um, part of the, 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 the reason why you went to Mexico is because you, you felt old and that you felt that the driving days were, uh, were numbered. I mean, your, your descriptions and writing, um, I guess are wonderfully alive. So it's hard for me to understand what you mean exactly. But given that the theme of, um, being older runs throughout the book, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about what you think about life and death now after having been through mexico uh that's a complicated question when uh, thoughts about life and death but uh, mm-hmm. I, I, what what you tend to think of it, what, you you i was raised to respect older people and to think that if someone had lived a long time they were they had experience i always think that um as a as a traveler people say i've been to bhutan I've been to Johannesburg, I've been to Brazil, and I I often think, you know, I've been to a place where you've never been and you can't go. It's called the past. I've been to the past. Mm-hmm. I lived in the past. I lived in the 19, late 1940s and 50s uh, in America when America was a very, very different place. So when you, li- you, you live a long time, you have this arc uh, where you've seen things happening and you've heard people saying, this is going to happen. This is definitely going to happen. Uh, that's not going to happen. And you've, if you, you've lived through that, you see the promises that people make remain unfulfilled so that um, you can say, by the way, you know, uh, I, I've heard that before. I know that already. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. So the, a, a younger person is more hopeful at the same time, more gullible mm-hmm. and more naive about the possibilities. So, um, so the possibilities in life, as far as death, I mean, you mentioned death, you know, it's, uh, obviously it's inevitable, but I don't, uh, I suppose Mexicans deal with it in the, in the right way, which is they mock death. They think, um, you know, they're just something, they, there's skeletons everywhere in Mexico. So they're always kind of mm-hmm. thinking about it and, mocking it, jeering it, satirizing it, uh, dressing up skeletons and parading with skeletons, putting on skeleton makeup, something, it's not, it's not a forbidden topic. It's actually, uh, it's part of the culture that, that death in life, life in death. Uh, and you know, they, they have this sense that a lot of folk societies have, which is that people don't really die. They just sort of disappear from the earth, but they're still there. They're, they're, they're there as spectral beings, and they pop up every so often, and they need to be propitiated. So that's quite a nice thought, you know, that, that um, you don't die. You just sort of go into another realm. Mm-hmm. And all these things, you know, you, here I am in my car just driving around learning these things. 
Mm-hmm. And I could, at any moment, I could get back in the car, drive to the border and be in Houston or McAllen, Texas or, you know, uh, Arizona. So the idea that it, this separate culture exists so near mm-hmm. to our weird um, money culture, because Mexicans really don't have a lot of money. They're not, they, they, they tend um, to be very frugal. Um, they, when they come to the States, they come to the States to look for work. They don't come looking for welfare. They come to, you know, do drywall, fix the roof, cut the grass, do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea that these cultural experiences are so accessible to any American is quite a remarkable thing because I'm used to, say you want to write a book about Africa, uh, and I live near Boston. I would have to fly from Boston to London or Frankfurt, and then Frankfurt to somewhere, and then to Nairobi, and then or wherever, and then start the trip. But this is a trip that I could start just by getting in my car, and I'm there, you know, I just drive through the South, and I'm there. So that was very appealing. And I should say, apropos of your question, which is that, uh, what do you think about life and death? Is that when I'm on the road, when I was on the road there and in Mexico, I didn't feel old. Mm. I didn't feel, I mean, people were respectful and I knew they were being respectful because I'm obviously older, but, but driving on the open road on a beautiful day, beautiful sunny day, driving through Mexico, driving from one great place to another, meeting people, you feel alive, you feel young, you feel, um, you know, full of hope that, uh, you're writing a book and you think, God, there's all this to write about. Mm. And I think just a road trip is a very in, invigorating, even rejuvenating in the true sense of the word that, that it makes you feel young. Um, so, so there's that, but it's, it was a road trip after all. Mm-hmm. And I, I took it as a road trip because the, my previous book called Deep South, the subtitle is Four Seasons on Back Roads, uh, was a road trip. And I thought, you know, I had never done that before. I had always taken a train or a bus or, you mm-hmm. know, kayak or whatever. Uh, the idea of getting getting in my car and driving around the South, uh, I found very stimulating. And I, I, I liked the trip. I made friends. I wrote the book. book came out three or four years ago. And um, I thought I want to do it again. But I would like to do it in a you know different country, different context. I, w- I was going to ask you about that because you've written quite a number of books that deal with train travel, right? The Great Railway Railway Bazaar, the Old Patagonia Express, and Iron Rooster, and so on. And the last few books you've essentially written um, on on cars. So I was going to ask you um, about the differences between the the modes of transport and how how that kind of opens you up to perhaps new experiences or new vistas that you would otherwise have? Like, what are, do you have any kind of observations about uh, the the differences and the merits and the pitfalls of each? Yeah, uh, I think that um, every country can be traveled in and discovered in a peculiar way, in its own peculiar way. Mm-hmm. So that there are some countries, China, for example, is best seen by train. There are first the places full of trains. They go everywhere. You can sleep on them. You can eat on them. You can meet people on them. The airports are jammed with people. And when you get on a plane, you don't you don't really talk to anyone. But uh, uh, so I found that writing the Iron Rooster book, that go, taking trains all around China was the ideal way of seeing China. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm sure that people the roads are better. At the time I was traveling, the roads were terrible, and there weren't many cars around. But um, it may be possible to, to have a road trip in China now. I'm, people have done it. Peter Hessler did it. Um, he's a wonderful travel writer, and Peter. So Peter Hessler drove around and picked up hitchhikers and wrote a, an interesting book about it. But I I thought that China's he didn't go to all the places that I went. I mean, I drove to Tibet. Mm. I took, uh, after I, t- I took a train to a place called Goldmood, rented a car, and then drove to Tibet. I took a train to Wulamuchi or Rumchi uh, in Turfan, which is 
you know, thousands of miles from Beijing, and you couldn't you could drive there through the Taklamakan Desert, you'd die. You'd probably never find a gas station for one thing. And um, so that was I solved that problem taking the train. Same um, South America at the time I took the uh, old Patagonia Express trip. There were a lot of trains. There were tra- I took a train through Mexico. I went to Laredo, Texas, and I took a train to Mexico City. I went to Veracruz. I took a train to Guatemala. Those trains don't exist anymore. You can't you can't find a train. <laughs> There's one train. They call it the Beast. It's the it's the <laughs> one that comes from Guatemala, from Tapachula, and migrants take it. But it's a, it's a it's a horrible train. It's horrible, and people have written about it. They write about it, in, you know, as torture. So it's. Um, it's just an old clanking train that takes days. There's no food. Mm-hmm. People die on it. They get women get raped. Uh, you know, it's just awful. Um, but it depends where you go. I mean, w- when I was traveling in the Pacific, I decided to take a kayak with me. So I had a folding kayak, a German folding kayak called a Klepper kayak. And um, I thought this is ideal. I'll go to uh, Tonga. I'll go to the Cook Islands. I'll go to New Guinea. I'll go to a place, I'll set up my kayak and I'll go paddling away. I'll go and I, with my tent and my food and everything, I'll go camping. So that's what I did. I did it on 50 odd islands around the Pacific and I wrote a book called The Happy Isles of Oceania. Didn't take a train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, and not many buses. So I, I would fly to an archipelago and Samoa, Tonga, you know, wherever the Marquesas, and paddle a kayak. So I guess my point is that depends where you go, um, you have to choose the best way of discovering that country. It might be walking. It might be a bus. It might be a train. It might be a boat. It might be a yacht. I don't know, whatever it is, but you discover that way. How how can you see the place best? How can you meet mm-hmm. people? How can you understand their lives? And I suppose... Their food? I suppose in the deep south, um, because of the kind of poor infrastructure and the lack of of trains, by necessity, perhaps you'd need to go by by car. I mean, many of the Greyhound buses don't even, you know, stop in in some of the the cities down there. So perhaps also... No, you couldn't do it by bus. You couldn't do it by bus. Really, you can only do it by car because Mm -hmm. there's so many back roads. Uh, The roads are good, though, you know, I mean, um, but... But the buses don't go there. There's there's a couple of trains that crisscross the south, but I mean that's not going to show you anything. Mm-hmm. I I felt very strongly that a road trip in the south was the way to do it, and I loved the trip. I also before I left, I did something that I don't usually do. Is I I got a list of people um, in various professions, farmers, um, in in housing and welfare. Uh, in just various phases of, of, of life that I wanted to meet. And so I met, you know, one person would introduce you to another person. So I often, I didn't meet people randomly at first. I connected with them. People mm-hmm. in, the people, you know, in housing, you know, building houses, people in welfare, you know, helping people who are below the poverty line and um, building uh, you know, fi- fixing up houses for the poor, um, farming farm, uh, in Mississippi and Arkansas, they're growing soybeans, rice, you know, wheat and whatnot. And I felt um, once I had met and proved myself to one group in the South, they readily introduced me to other people. So. I could get in the car and they'd say, oh, you should, you should meet so-and-so. He's got a farm over in, you know, Mariana and, or Helena. And, and I, would, I would get in the car and I'd drive. I'd, they would call a person and say, Paul's coming over. Can you tell him about, you know, show him your fields or whatever, or the houses that you're building. And that, that, that uh, helped me. In Arkansas, uh, in Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, not too much in Georgia, um, I had good contacts in Georgia, but I found Georgia was doing okay. South Carolina, not so great. Um, but but traveling by car and then and meeting people, connecting with people, um, um, 
so I suppose you'd say networking, but it mm-hmm. wasn't really networking. It was it was people trying to help, you know, in the South. And I realized then that what interested me most was people who are living, who are overlooked. Um, planes fly over them. The government doesn't care much about them. Uh, they don't figure. You know, they live in places where there's no bank, there's no store, there's no the schools are bad, and no one's paying much attention to them. And I thought, well, I want to write about these people uh, in the Delta, in the Ozarks, mm-hmm. you know, in parts of Alabama that are notoriously uh, poor, mm-hmm. and South Carolina. So I did that, and and when you one of the uh, features of meeting poor people, people below the poverty line, people who haven't had any breaks, is they keep their culture intact. They tend to, uh, if they're going to church, they keep going to church. They, if in Mexico, the poor uh, retain their culture, because, you know, it hasn't been replaced. They haven't been corrupted by another culture. Mm -hmm. That's what they've got. So traditional life is lived by people who don't have anything else. They don't have money. They don't travel. They tend to stay in the same place. And so they have, their cultural traditions tend to be intact. I mean, that was a kind of discovery that I made. Well, I made it earlier in my life. But it, but it was true in the, as true in the South as it is in Africa or you know, Mexico. That, so, rem- that reminds me of the uh, famous Voltaire quote uh, where he's speaking about money. He says... Uh, and it's probably a little bit different than this, but he says, when it comes to money, we are all of the same religion. The idea being that money has the tendency to kind of kind of level people on, on, on not just the same financial, but the same cultural kind of playing field there. Or the, or the same, yeah, ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think that's true. Um, you, you kind of understand each other. But when, then you meet people with no money, they've never had money, that will never get money, then you have to figure out what their true interests are. I mean, maybe they want it, but um, I found, you know, work takes the place of that. I mean, they're not, they tend to be underpaid. I mean, that was a discovery. NAFTA mm-hmm. underpays everybody. That just is kind of a, a way of looking, getting cheap labor. And, you know, no, no one in Mexico is really happy about that. But, um, uh, th- th- this kind of discovery in travel makes you travel more. It 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 actually stimulates um, the desire to see something else. When there's no discovery in travel, you think, "Well, I'm not learning anything. I'll I'll just go home." Mm-hmm. But when you're learning something and making a discovery in travel, it it gives you heart and it helps you move on and um, lifts your morale because it's it can be very de- demoralizing to travel mm-hmm. and people don't figure that. Well, I mean, I suppose some people do, but but it can be, you know, it can be very lonely. Um, mm-hmm. Someone once called, travel is the saddest pleasure. <laughs> the saddest pleasure. And it, um, in a way it is, you know, it's the saddest pleasure. You, but, but then you beat someone um, or you, or you discover something, um, you know, whatever it is, a, a painting, a food, or some cultural insight, and then you think, well, I want to see more. And mm-hmm. it gets less sad. Take, you know, there's kind of joy that comes from that. Mm, you were talking about people that were overlooked were among the most interesting. And, and what I found very, very interesting and um kind of compelling is the 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 portraits or the snapshots in this new book uh, of the migrants uh, that there's a you know section in the book where you recount the stories of some of the the migrants and uh, I mean that that part was just you know fascinating it's not just the story of of an of, a, of an American traveler going through Mexico but the stories stories of other types of travelers um, you know perhaps going to the United States in which, you know, those episodes are, are interesting. And it also kind of begs the question, a larger question. Um, how, 
how is how is it that you're able to to connect and have conversations with with these people without kind of raising the alarm or raising suspicions like how how did you go about that uh to meet people in in that um situation which is a situation of crisis you need to be respectful mm-hmm. um and oblique uh you can't confront you don't just show up and ask them a million questions you need to kind of show that you you have some concern um that you can help in some way explain something that you're genuinely interested in where they come from what i found a lot of the times was that that i would be talking and asking questions and they would talk about their experiences how they were trying to get to see a, a husband or a child in the states and get lost in the desert and get thrown out and you know talking and they would start to cry and mm. it's very melancholy for some or others um you would know, work for years and years picking strawberries in Fresno and came back to Mexico for a funeral and then they couldn't go back to Fresno where they'd left their family so sad stories of separation but how you meet the people is you need, I mean, I needed to be introduced to these people by intermediaries in some place. I didn't just bump into them in the street. I, I met them at, at migrant shelters mm-hmm. uh, through third parties, priests or, uh, you know, migrant groups that had were, were trying to help them. And um, I, I, I tried to be, you know, in, in some of the time I wasn't taking notes. I I took notes after, so I wasn't sitting there writing stuff down okay. and saying, "So where do you come from, and how do you spell it?" I, mm-hmm. I had conversations with them, and I mean, I think that's another way. I've always felt that someone taking notes is sort of suspect. I mean, I realize that in many respects, you 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 have to take notes of 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 conversations, but I've trained myself to remember conversations that I have with people so that so that I can look them in the eye, talk to them, and then immediately afterwards, when, when we kind of sort of say, you know, nice talking to you, I, I immediately go and I write everything down. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, in many cases, that's what I did, which was not to have a notebook. I mean, sometimes I did have a notebook, but it, but I tried not to look too much like you know, the cub reporter saying, mm-hmm. so what was it like? You know, what were the cops like? What did they say to you? And how do you spell it? And uh, that sort of thing, which to a lot of people can be very off-putting. Mm-hmm. You know? This reminds me of the episode in the in, in the book, um, and we won't spoil it, but the episode in the book where you ask uh, a, a driver to take you into the uh, the tolerance zones, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the driver was very suspicious about you having a notepad and a pen handy, um, as yeah. that might raise some alarms there. Uh, very interesting. I know. Yeah. Well, th- th- there's a level of anxiety uh, that was on the border. Mm. And there's a level of anxiety on the border. On the one hand, um, inspired by the police who are pretty ferocious. And then on the other hand, by the cartels, which are even more ferocious. So, you know, people have their guard up. They're not paranoid exactly, but they're very, very careful about how they look, where they go, what they say. And mm-hmm. they don't even use the word cartel. No one, no one would say, oh, it was the Zeta cartel or Zetas, cartelas. They would say, they just whisper, mafia. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> They're saying the word, just saying it just marks you as someone to be, you know, you've got to be really careful. So, um, yeah, I, I I felt that to be the case, that you had to understand the anxiety of people who live there, the sort of threats that they live with. Because although I'm very upbeat about Mexico, I'm, uh, I know that they have a, a huge murder rate. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the cartel's control the border they control immigration you know you chinese people come to mexico pay fifty thousand dollars to a cartel and they go through a tunnel to san isidro 
So it's not as though everyone's in a caravan, you know, climbing the fence. Some people are being escorted into the States. And um, you need to understand that, that not all migrants are the same. So mm-hmm. anyway, those are all the discoveries that that I felt I was making. And I, um, useful, use, use, useful stuff. Stuff that I, I thought, well, I'm here, I'm on this trip, but I have something to write about, you know. At, uh, that's always a very helpful experience, you know, to, you, to, to think I've got something. I, you know, it's not just the same thing every day. Uh, I don't have to invent anything or, you know, just or create something. I'm actually, um, I'm making discoveries. The other thing, I, I, as I said, I made friends. And if you're traveling among friends, um, it's very reassuring to to be with people who have your back and who are being helpful. And I probably had more help writing this book just from Mexicans who were saying, who realized I'm a serious person. I'm on their side. I'm kind of like them in some ways, which is that, uh, you know, I'm vulnerable. I'm in my car. I'm driving in you know, back roads and so forth. They're sympathetic to that. They see, you know, I'm not being picked up by a, a Uber driver and taken to the airport so that I can fly back to wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of facing a lot of the issues that they're facing. That's helpful. And they can identify with that. And and for, as a result, I, I got a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, when I went to Mexico, that that was one of the observations that I walked away with is that, um, you know, well, Mexicans aren't rapists and murderers, but they're actually very helpful and very friendly and willing to have real conversations with with people that are, are foreigners. Um, I remember taking a bus from maybe it was Guadalajara to Zacatecas or someplace and um, sitting next to this gentleman on, on the bus and he was the most friendly. I, I was a bit on, you know, on guard, right? I was a young man at that time, but he just, he was the most friendly and helpful person that I've, that I've probably ever met. Um, he even bought me an yeah, ice cream. Yeah, that can happen. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's, it's alarming uh, in one, in one sense, the, the, the stereotypes that are, um, I guess, communicated on one side of the border, which completely are shattered when you take the time and just, just to go, just visit Mexico, right? It's, yeah, it's dangerous, yeah. but not as as dangerous as it's made out to be. And people are, uh, as you say, very friendly and uh, respectful and helpful. I felt that to be the case, and I felt, um, but you need a certain amount of luck too. That uh, I mean, you can be unlucky, and there are plenty of unlucky people there too. So mm. um, it's not all roses, but I mean, I must say. Uh, I enjoyed it, and and I suppose it's something about this time of life because I was in Mexico in the seventies. In the seventies, I was kind mm-hmm. of a smart aleck, just traveling, and I felt, uh, you know, a travel book is about the traveler. It's about me. It's sort of what happened to me, and I'm, you know, here I am on this bus, and now I here I am eating a taco or whatever. It was. I I felt, you know, as you get older, you realize it's not about you. It's really a, other people's lives are uh, difficult, and and other people are a hundred times more interesting than mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. You know that you're just a punk, and um, so that that was a discovery that I made, and um, it served me well in, in Mexico. Also, there's a lot of places. You know, um, there are places I would never want to go back to, but Mexico is a place I've been back since I finished writing the book. I've been back. Uh, three times. Mm. So just to see friends, to do things, you know, and um, and I'll keep going back. So it was a, a great discovery to have. And then people even say, you, know, you should retire here, you should live here. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen. But, um, you know, it's nice of people to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, there's something very honest uh, about about life there. And I guess, you know, you know, there's, I guess, a couple threads here we can go down. But um, I think what I find very honest about about your book is that it's not just, as you say, kind of the narrative of, of the traveler, but it does try to give the voice to to some of the voice to, to the Mexicans and also 
attribute some of that voice to to your own experiences, especially on the. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Especially on the on the border, uh, where you know it's 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 a very honest book in terms of complicating the U.S. Mexican uh, relations, and what I mean by that is that um, you know it seems to be you're, you're very critical of kind of the rhetoric coming out of Trump's mouth, but also very um, critical about you know, the history of American politics, including Obama era and Clinton era. Um, uh, definitely, policies. definitely, definitely. No one's, no one has come up with an answer. And certainly mm-hmm. uh, Obama didn't have the answer. Clinton didn't have the answer. NAFTA is not the answer. Um, Obama's deportations, what did they solve? Nothing. Uh, I don't believe in open borders. People, you know, there are people running for president who are saying, we should decriminalize. We should have open borders. You can't have open borders. You need. Uh, we we need to have a sensible immigration policy. And uh, so I'm not. You know, I, I I'm kind of a lone voice here because you know there are there are a lot of people saying, well, you know, these poor people, um, uh, they uh, want to walk across the border, and we're stopping them and. My general feeling is get in line, you know, take a number. And if you're, have, if you're in um, a very bad place, um, tell your story and, and um, show that your life is in danger or whatever. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I mentioned Chinese who pay the cartels. It's not only them, Indians, Pakistanis, Afghans, Syrians, Congolese, Nigerians, Angolans. What they call special interest aliens. You never hear about them. You never hear about them. But they're in jails up and down the border, you know, in holding pens saying, you know, if they tried to get across. They, uh, there, are, there are some prisons that have, have hundreds of Indians in them, you know, Indians from India. And what's the story with that? I mean, India is the world's largest democracy. Are they being persecuted or they just have the money uh, to get to the state? So obviously, some kind of policy is necessary and some kind of security too. So um, I, I, I discuss this in the book, mm-hmm. but it's not a polemical book. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on anything. I'm just a traveler writing down people's stories, trying to meet people. And I can't pass myself off as any kind of sociologist, anthropologist, economist, or anything like that. I don't, I'm not an expert. Um, but then the experts don't have many answers either. So I'm just the um, eyewitness, I suppose you could say. But uh, I've been, I have traveled um, my whole life since I was probably 21, 22 years old. And I'm now in my 70s. So 50 years, um, I've been going up and down, trying to figure out what's going on. And, And so much of what what governments say or people say is wrong. It's wrong. Uh, uh, wrong in Africa, wrong in South America, wrong in Europe, wrong about the borders, wrong. And so I've tried to make sense of this just by seeing it, you know, that uh, learning by doing, being a, an eyewitness, um, uh Someone once said, um, "the the only um, the only uh, true the only true knowledge arises out of direct experience. True knowledge arises out of direct experience." Do you know who said that? Chairman Mao. Mm. <laughs> That's one of the it's one of the thoughts of Chairman Mao. But it happens to be a true. You know, he wasn't. Um, the nicest man in the world, but but that's a true thought. I mean, that genuine knowledge rises from direct experience. I suppose that a, a, a true traveler can say that. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and I want to be respectful of your time here. And um, in closing, um, there's this wonderful uh, point to go full circle now. There's this wonderful point in, in, in the book where you're in Oaxaca and you, you just... Um, finished celebrating the, the Day of the Dead uh, yeah. celebrations. And you're reflecting on, on the experiences. And if I, if I may quote you here, you say, it was at that point more than halfway through my road trip and in a lifetime of travel 
had never felt more fully alive, more eager to wake each morning and see what the day would bring. I kept thinking with pleasure, I'm still here, right? And it's yeah, wonderful kind of... What page is that on? Gosh, I, I wrote it down and... Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> if you uh, give me a second, I could probably... I, I, it, it, it definitely... Um... I remember saying that I, just, I couldn't. I couldn't recall where I actually. I have it here. It's um, two fifty-five. Two fifty-five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I got a book. Yeah, check it out. So yeah. Um. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's um. Oh, that, that, that's a thing called memento mori. Correct. Yeah. 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 Remember, you must die. Is memento mori, um, yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I guess this relates to one of the kind of virtues of of, of, of travel, right? You you experience the world, but you also um, you know you feel alive and invigorated by kind of exploring and seeing the world. And I don't know. It's just there's something just wonderful and something that rings true true about that. And you know, you fall in love with a place and with, with travel when you can, you know, feel alive, uh, there or have the sensation of, of rebirth, I guess. That's true. But I think, I think it's, uh, it's salutary to remember that you can fall in love with a place, but you can't really lead, let your guard down. You can't ever think that you're anonymous, that you're invisible, that you're one of the bunch. When you when you start thinking that you um, you're kind of being presumptuous, and I think that it helps to remember that you're conspicuous. That I'm a conspicuous gringo. I remember being in the car. I was, I was in a uh, uh, gas station in the middle of Mexico, and and two kids walked by, and one of them just pointed. My window was closed actually, but and 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 he pointed and said, "Gringo, gringo, gringo, gringo," <laughs> like that. And I thought, here I am in a car. You know, an ordinary car. A lot of Mexicans have cars like that. It was just a Nissan, you know, older car. And then I realized I'm visible today. I'm visibly a gringo. And um, it was a country area. It wasn't that wouldn't happen in Mexico City because a lot of people in Mexico City's city look look like gringos, but they're not. I mean, they're from Europe and you know mm-hmm. Spain, and so forth. But they 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 look you know, ambiguous. But um, so uh this idea that i i i love the place but i i also think you need to be respectful you can't make presumptions you can't uh you can't presume on people you need to, uh you need to understand that you're a guest you have no rights uh if a cop stops you um you need to to negotiate he can really really ruin your day or your month or your your life so um there's that too i think this whole idea of you you have to be patient and you have to be respectful and i think that a lot of travelers a lot of people who travel aren't respectful enough or they're not you know they they tend to think i'm here here's my money uh, you need me, and they actually don't. They they think you're here today, you'll be gone tomorrow. And um, I think living in Hawaii has shown me a lot of that to a very large degree, which is that there are people who live in Hawaii, you know, natives of Hawaii, citizens of Hawaii who've lived there for generations, and they see people come and go. They've seen so many people come and go, and the presumption of people who go to Hawaii is, is that I'm here, you know, this is America and, you know, I've got as much right as you have. And that's true. They do. But there's a, there's a small town element among what they call the Kama'aina, the, the long timers, you know, the, the old timers in Hawaii who, um, who noticed that they're being disrespected or, or presumed upon. So I've lived there for 30 years and I, I mean, I still don't feel a sense of belonging in Hawaii, although you know people do they come they stay, and they feel that but i don't I don't feel that and i I think um you need to understand that you uh you have to prove yourself mm-hmm. you have to um show 
by example, um, that you have to earn the respect of people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in life, um, I suppose when I first started travel, I was in the Peace Corps. I still have the mind of a Peace Corps volunteer, but the Peace Corps does teach you that, that, uh, that you have to earn people's respect and you have to give something of yourself. You can't just take it. Mm-hmm. So I've, um, it's helpful no, no matter where you're traveling. And, and it's served me well, I think. So where, where to next? I have an idea for a, a, a book of travels that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ready to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to divulge, but, but I have a good idea. I have a, I have a good idea. Um, and we'll see how it works out. But so where to, it would be, um, a number of places, but it would be traveling on a theme. Um, mm-hmm. I know I realize I'm not, I'm not being very helpful, but, uh, <laughs> no, I understand. as far as actual travel, I mean, in about two weeks, I'm going to Lisbon. I'm giving a talk to at a convention in the, or a, a sort of seminar in Lisbon for for a couple of days, and then I'm coming back. Uh, and so I do that kind of travel, which is going to a place and doing a job, mm-hmm. uh, talking um, on an assignment or something like that. But I, uh, that's the, that's the the, uh, the, the the travel on my mind at the moment. Are you going to do a book tour for On the Plane of Snakes? Yeah, I'm going to various places. I'm going to Nashville, New York City, Seattle. I think I'm going to Austin, Texas. Okay. Portland. Yeah, places. Yeah, not many, but some. You know, book bookstores are fewer and fewer. And one way to reach people is what we're doing now, which is uh, a podcast where people, you know. I would show up in Philadelphia or, you know, wherever, St. Louis, go to a bookstore and say the things that I'm telling you now. And this is a way of reaching those people who whose bookstore has disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so they can they can hear this and hear me talking and and say, uh, sounds like an interesting book on the plane of snakes, mm-hmm. Mexican journey. Hmm. I think I'll get that. So that's you know this uh this is a good substitute it's mm-hmm. longer um and you're asking interesting questions so uh i think it takes the place of of going on a book tour to a certain extent well i'll try to find uh, a link to your physical dates um and i can put it in the show notes of of this episode so people maybe they can go see you in in person too but uh, thank you so much for your time. I had a wonderful time uh, chatting with you and, and also reading the book. Uh, I read a lot of travel books and um, this one uh, hit all the buttons for me. So thank you. Good. I'm glad. Thanks, Jeremy. It's nice talking to you. Bye for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. Links can be found at alloverthepodcast.com.